I think it's almost an obligation to get back. And like I say, you have, you need to be careful. You want to pick your spots, but it's important to get back. Welcome to the third season of the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a musical icon, Grammy winner and Oscar-nominated Bay Area treasure, Huey Lewis to the Good Tidings podcast. So Huey, welcome and thank you for taking time to chat today. Happy to do it. Good to be here. So we first met way back in 1990 when I was hired as the scouting director for the San Francisco Giants. I just moved up here from Southern California, certainly knew all about your music, but one of my first memories of you and the news is how often you'd be willing to sing the national anthem at all the big Bay Area games. How did that all come to be, you being the go-to for the national anthems? Well, we were first asked, I think I think we first one we did was an Oakland A's anthem. They were asked us to do it, and we worked up the acapella version. And they liked it so much they recorded it, and then they kind of kept playing it. They played it, the recording, when we weren't there and so on. So uh, it kind of caught on that way, and other people found out. and. So then they just asked us, and of course, it's rather nerve-wracking because it's tough to hear yourself, and we do an acapella version. It's not easy, but it only lasts two minutes, and you get the best seats in the house for the game, so (laughs) (laughs) no-brainer. So I I know you were an All-State baseball player in high school. If you were to write your baseball scouting report, what would it say? No power at the plate, powerless at the plate, pretty good stuff for a pitcher, curveballs is out pitch. But he can't throw it by anybody. <laughs> That's what I would say. <laughs> I know your dad and, and reading about some of the stuff growing up, your dad was very education focused. You even had a perfect 800 score on the math portion of the SAT. But when you graduated high school and were on your way to Cornell, your dad gave you some kind of shocking advice. So tell us about that. Yeah, he, um, first of all, I was a year young because I'd skipped second grade. He sat me down and told me that he was very proud of me that I'd graduated high school and all this. As far as he was concerned, all the decisions in my life were mine now, except he was going to make me do one last thing before he turned all the decisions over to me. And that was, don't go to college yet. He said, take a year off and bum around Europe. And literally, bum around Europe. And I said, well, but Pops, I'm going to go play ball and I'm going to do this. He said, no, it's really important that you do this because most people don't really figure out what they want to do at 16 or 17 years old. And it's nice to take a break sometimes and figure out maybe what you might want to do. So you don't wake up at 30 years old wondering, wishing, you know, what can I do? So that's what I did. I took a bunch, I was already playing the harmonica. So I took a bunch of harmonicas because it was easy to travel. And I bummed around Europe for a year. I've heard you use the word busking and I had to look that up. I never even heard that word, which obviously is just playing music on the street. So how much does a Huey Lewis back then make in a day busking around Europe? Yeah, I mean, that's how I learned my trade, really. I played for a year, you know, earned my living in the streets, which in those days was, was, was much more common than it is today. But And then, of course, I, after a year, I went back to school. I'd taken a year of a leave of absence from Cornell 
to do this. And then I went back to school and of course the bug had bit. So I joined bands and, you know, sort of went to classes in my spare time as it were. (laughs) And where, where did the love of the harmonica come from? Such a unique instrument that you became so good at. When my parents split up, I I lived with my mother and she, she rented a room to a boarder, a guy called folk singer called Billy Roberts, who wrote Hey Joe, the song Hey Joe. And he was a folk singer and played with those little harmonica brackets. And he had a ton of harmonicas and he was a boarder and he gave me all his old harmonicas. How interesting. And I heard you say, which is kind of funny, you, you were a 15 year overnight success, but as it should be and would be your record entitled sports would be your greatest album. You wrote and sung for top 10 signals, which really is now unheard of in today's world. How did that record come to be? Well, you know, our, our first record was produced by Bill Schnee and, and sold no records. So we decided that we would produce ourselves. We figured if we had to make compromise our stuff to be commercial or whatever that was, you know, in those days, you have to remember this is the early 80s. So there's no internet, there's no jam band scene. There's only one avenue to success, and that's a hit single. So it was top 40 was everything. So we figured we should produce the records ourselves because we would have to make decisions, controversial decisions based on the material. We, we wanted a hit, but we wanted a hit that we could live with. So we insisted on doing that ourselves. And our first record was Picture This, where we kind of learned our trade. But with sports, we really kind of came into our own and, you know, figure, figure that all out for ourselves. We aimed every song right at radio on sports uh, because we knew we needed a hit record. And if you listen to it today, it sounds like what it was, which is a collection of singles, because we knew we needed a hit. We didn't know we were going to have five of them. We knew we needed one. And so uh, that's why we produced that ourselves. And your Oscar-nominated song, which is Power of Love, which was Back to the Future, did they come to you and say, write us a song, or was Power of Love your next song up? The latter, actually. They, they asked to take a meeting with us, though it's Steven Spielberg who produced the film. Bob Zemeckis, who directed it, Bob Gale, whose story it was, who co-wrote it with with Neil Kenton and Bob. And they had a meeting. We had a meeting at Brand New Amblin Entertainment, and they said that they just written this film, and their lead character, Marty McFly's favorite band, would be Huey Lewis and the News. Well, how would we how would we like to write a song for the movie? And I said, Well, I'm very flattered, but I don't know how to write for film necessarily. I mean, and I told them, I, and frankly, I don't fancy writing a song called Back to the Future. And they said, Oh no, we don't care. Just as long as it's one of your songs. I said, Okay, well, we'll send you the next thing we're working on. And Chris and I had had already sort of started working on Power Love, so I went back home, finished it, finished a demo, set it down, and Zemeckis liked it but he said geez it's not up enough it needed to be up or whatever that was and so i i listened to it again and and the verse is in a minor key kind of not kind it is in a minor key and the the chorus part is it's a major key and so uh, i got with johnny and johnny came up with with those three chords in the the very beginning of the song to signal a big up chorus and from that moment on bob said this is perfect very cool. And the genre of your songwriting and your music is so eclectic and so 
diverse from song to song. Where do the roots of that come from? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, that was, we were always warned away from that ever since, ever since I've been in the business, uh, we've been told you have to narrow your focus and you got to, you have to be one thing and all this. Uh, and I just like all those types of influences. And I, I've always felt that if it's true and you really feel it, I mean, you know, the thing you like about singers, about songs and singers is their commitment. When, when the guy says, I'm going to Kansas City, they got some crazy little women there and I'm going to get me one. We have to believe he's going to Kansas City. He knows about the crazy little women, and he wants to get him one. If that happens, then it lives. And so it's just got to be true to you. You know, there's a story you need to tell that's true to you. So even though we're all kind of all over the place, all those resonate with me and my personality. And so hopefully there's a thread there that holds them all together. But quite right, we are always warned against the diversity. But I'm interested in all those things. And I think if it's true for us, it lives. Yeah. I mean, is it still wild to think that in the 80s, it was you and Michael Jackson who owned the music world in our country? Is that this, Does that still kind of feel weird to you? Yeah. I mean, I was amazed that our record was so popular. You know, I, like I said, we, we needed one hit. We didn't know we were going to have five of them. But, you know, it's a, it's a time and place thing. And, and really, you can't produce that sort of stuff. That's the songs I, I truly believe come from the muse or somewhere. They come from somewhere else. And some of them just get up and fly and others don't. Uh, others, uh, certain songs that I think are, have been among our best work just don't, don't happen and certain do. So, and Power Love was just one of those things that, that just, it came together really naturally and just kind of took off. Yeah. I've been up to your uh, Trout Farm studio in Marin, and and has most of your songs been written and recorded in the North Bay? Yeah. Early on, our first album was recorded in L.A., and uh, like I said, didn't sell anything. And so we decided right away that we'd produce our own stuff and literally, as well as figuratively, stay out of L.A. Because, um, you know, in those days, nobody produced themselves. Today, everybody does because there's all this home studio stuff and Pro Tools and you can do it and redo it. But in those days, we didn't have Pro Tools or any of that stuff. You had to kind of negotiate your way around the studio. And uh, so bands usually didn't produce themselves very fair and, and, and record companies wouldn't allow bands to produce themselves because you, you know, the, 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 you needed a producer with a track record producers make records, but we, fortunately, our, our manager went to bat for us and, and, and our label was Chrysalis records and they were 6,000 miles away in London and couldn't really control us. So we learned to make our own records and that proved to be very, very valuable because uh, we were able to do our own thing and, and really chisel out our own little niche, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the heart of heart and soul of this podcast is really to celebrate all the charity work you've done. And and my first question on that topic is musicians must be the most asked occupation to help out at charitable causes. How do you select where you go? Really good. That's a really, really good question. And you're dead right. You get tons of requests. So you have to pick your spots and, and, uh, I try to do that. I pick some large stuff and pick some small local stuff. I supported Lifehouse, which used to be called Marin Associated for Retarded Citizens for developmentally disabled kids and, and adults. In Marin, I've been their chief spokesman for their fundraiser every year. I've been there for 30 years. It's a wonderful organization. I, camp Okaizu is a cancer camp for young kids that we support. Bread and Roses is an organization that supports interned people and music and our entertainment for them. And we support them. 
And then I do a lot of little local stuff in, in, in Montana that there's a place called Bitter Youth Homes that I support. And there's another food bank charity in, in, in Missoula. And then in a world class, I, I'm a big supporter of a of an outfit called Bonefish Tarpon Trust, which look after the oceans and our environment. These are big, big questions, you know, big questions to take big answers. And so I try and pick some big things, big international things, and then smaller and whatever things, pick my spots and stick with them through the years. Yeah. You just rattled off. What I like too, is you, you're engaged in them. I could tell already, because you rattled off all these great causes you're engaged with. We were one of the beneficiaries back in 2015, when you performed for us at our 20th anniversary of our charity back at Bimbo's. You know, I'm, I'm interested too in that bonefish and tarpon trash, such a specific, obviously you're a fisherman. Okay, let me ask you this. So if tomorrow I said, you want to go fishing, you want to go play golf, where are we going? Well, I'd fish tomorrow because it's going to rain. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I no, I, I love both those things. And, you know, I had a hearing mishap. I've lost my hearing for the for four years now. It's, and so I can't sing and hear music enough to sing, which is was devastating at first. But you have to remember there are a lot of people out there worse off. And so, uh, and so I've, I've tried to stay creative and, and delve into other things. We have a musical that we're putting up on Broadway with a little TV show that I'm working on. And I've got a chance to go fishing a lot more and play a lot more golf. So I, I enjoy that a lot. I really love, I mean, fishing is, is maybe my favorite thing in the world. And I suddenly realize it's because it's connection with mother nature and it just rejuvenates me. I feel smaller but more a part of something when I'm outside and I love the outdoors. Yeah. And it's interesting. The, uh, I guess living in Montana is a lot of freshwater fishing, but the bonefish and tarpon is more ocean focused. And I assume they do some work also to help the environment. It's, it's all about the production and, and reproduction of those fish. These are really big issues. These are international issues. I mean, the Bahamas is a huge breeding ground for bonefish tarpons and permit. And so we have to work with the Bahamian government a little bit. We have to work with all kinds of international people. And these are big issues that they're easy to ignore, but I think very important. Yeah. You mentioned also bread and roses, which really brings live music to people. And, and how, how important is it for anyone to appreciate a live musical performance than just sitting wearing headphones all day? Yeah. I mean, well, there's nothing like live music. And by the way, the nice thing about Bread and Roses is that it's a win-win. I mean, not only is it great for the interned people, be they senior citizens in a living facility or prisoners or something like that, but it's also a win for the performers. Because when you first start out in performing, you really only perform for your friends. It's probably a friendly audience when you first start in a band. You, you know, you play a show and half the people, maybe there's very few people there, but all your friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters come to see a play. So when you go perform for Bread and Roses, these are hard-bitten strangers and they don't know you from Adam. So it's a wonderful education there to try and play music to somebody who who isn't overtly familiar with you or or even inclined to to really appreciate you, although they're happy to have some entertainment. So in our early days, we've supported... Uh, bread and Roses for years now. band I was in previous to this was called Clover. We did a bunch of Bread and Roses shows inside San Quentin and all these places. And I and honestly say that I enjoyed myself, but more than enjoyed, learned 
more about my craft it was probably more more influential more important for me than it was for the audience so it's a win-win the bread and roses they they do a great job yeah it's how interesting a perspective that if you can reel in someone who doesn't know you that's quite interesting so of of your songs you've written so many great songs what is the most requested and which one is most dear to you well uh, power love is the most requested i suppose because the movie propelled it so much but the ones that I like, you know, we produce the records ourselves. So the ones I like are always the problem ones, not the ones that just soar to the top. They're the ones that I think could be really good, but we miss them somehow. So, or the latest thing. And, and honestly, we, our latest record is called Weather. And there's two songs on there that I think are not only among, they might be our best work on there. So I think our recent record is really good. That's the stuff that's, that I'm lacking right now. You, you brought up your Meniere's disease, which is so unfortunate. So in having struggling with this over the past three or four years, how did this new album come to be? Well, this was all done before my, I lost my hearing. We were just compiling as we, you know, the hardest part is to write the song. You got to find the song. The song is a gift. You get the idea, the muse comes, boom. So now you got to write the song and try not to let the idea get away, you know, try and capture that idea as good as it is in your head. So we would do that, write it, and then rehearse it, and then take it on the road and play it live, and then rearrange it, and then record it, and then put it in the vault. And we were doing that song by song for almost 10 years. We had seven things done when I lost my hearing. We waited a year to see if I could, if my hearing would return, and it didn't. So we release the record with only seven songs. And in your opinion, since you're supported by the public, do you have a, not a responsibility, but kind of a, a nagging to go back and help the public that supported you over the years? And that hence is where some of this charity work comes from? No question. No question. I mean, when you, you know, you don't do what we do with our success, if you will, is attributable to more than our hard work and talent. There's no question that good fortune comes into play in this business because you have to hit a nerve with these songs and so on. So because of that, I think it's almost an obligation to give back. And like I say, you have you need to be careful. You want to pick your spots, but it's important to give back. Yeah. Well, I think with your, you know, the long history of so many, that makes it easier for you to unfortunately say no to some people. You know, you mentioned there was interesting, because I was going to ask this, I read about the anthology that's coming, but it seems to me I would want more, even more than that, which would be a movie or a Broadway production. You mentioned something might be happening on Broadway. Can you share anything more on that? Yeah, we, we have a musical that we've been working on for a decade now called The Heart of Rock and Roll. They say the heart of rock and roll is It's an original story. It's not about Huey Lewis and the News, but all the music is Huey Lewis and the News music. And it's been rearranged by, a, a, we have a musical director called Brian Yusufer. It's brilliant. We put the show up in San Diego with the Old Globe and got really great reviews, sold it out for six weeks solid and got standing ovations every night. And now we're waiting to try to get it to Broadway. We may go through London first if we can. It's, you know, COVID is, has 
turned everything on its head. So we're in the wings. Yeah. Well, that, that'll be highly sought after, I would think. In the 80s, back when music videos were played on MTV, yours were some of the best. Does more effort go into making a video than even making a song back then? Probably not more effort because it was a, a two or three day deal, but yeah, you have to conceive it and so on. I mean, it's kind of a funny story. You know, we, we did these two little self videos. There was a gal called Kim Dempster who ran an outfit called Video West in San Francisco. This is with the advent of a videotape. Videotape was just new in 1977. People forget this, but in, and so we had a little, and so they came, there was a new channel. Cable TV had just started. And, and they had a they had a channel on cable TV, Video West, where they would show these music videos at like two o'clock in the morning or, or midnight or whatever it was. And so she came to us and said, look, if you let us do a video of your band and show it on our channel, we'll let you have the video. I said, great. So we did two songs. I conceived of the video kind of, I swiped old hullabaloo ideas and, and we had a kind of a fun thing. And so we shot it in one day. And that video got us our record deal. Well, when we signed our record after our first record, which didn't sell, our second record, our lead single was Do You Believe in Love? record company was mad for it and they were convinced we needed to do a real professional video not not a little homespun thing like we'd done so they hired a advertising guy uh, who did you know ads and so on and he did this video we shot it all day long that's the do you believe in love video the one where we're in the bed with a girl check six of us in the bed and we had all this makeup on and these and the pastel set design matched our our makeup and our pastel shirts and all that anyway we do the whole video and we shoot it all day long and now it's three weeks later or two weeks later and we were summoned back to the record company to see the rough cut we get in there and it's, there's probably eight of us in the band and then there was six people from the record company and six people from the video company so probably almost you know 25 people and the director says now this is just a, hasn't been colorized yet it hasn't been colorized so it's going to look much much better but this here's our here's our rough cut and he turns off the lights and plays the video well my heart just sunk it was horrible <laughs> there was no there was no direction to this thing the guy me was just walking through the frame, singing to the other side. I mean, it was just crazy. There was, was no point, no purpose, no nothing to it. I thought, and I had this terrible sinking feeling through the whole video. And when it ended, <laughs> he turned the lights back on and everybody stood up and gave us a standing ovation. And I remember thinking to myself, well, clearly anybody can do this. There's, there's no <laughs> art to this at all. We're producing our own records. From now on, we're gonna do our own videos. And so um, that's what we did. And we, and we tried to um, stay away from the song was the idea. The song tells one story. So zig when the song zags and just have fun and goof. And uh, that's what we did. And kind of on the goof thing, uh, as great of a quarterback as Joe Montana might not be as good of a singer, having him and the Niners on a song, where did that thought come from? First time we met, I think, was at a Bay Area Music Awards event. Bam, remember the Bammies? And Joe and Dwight were giving away an award, and we met backstage, and they they 
pronounced the, themselves big fans of mine. And I, you know, of course, was huge fans of theirs. And Joe jokingly said, hey, you should let us sing on one. Or I guess maybe, maybe it was white. <laughs> let us sing on one of your songs and we'll let you take a few snaps. And I thought, okay, you know, haha, sure. And then when we cut Hip to Be Square, we had the idea of the a big shout chorus. And so, you know, I called him up. And, and it's funny because Bill Walsh was really controlling and bill bill wanted to make sure we had two defensive players and two offensive players you know? oh, so we got we got joe dwight ronnie lott and ricky ellison and the four of them came into the studio and sang and uh it was a lot of fun we had a we had a ball and so the the gang course on here there and everywhere is are the 49ers and on the very last tail end of that song hip to be square the last hip to be square is dwight clark singing and in fact you know, he sang, Dwight could really sing. And I probably, I regretted that I didn't use more of his vocal in there because he could really sing and, and, it, and it was great. Yeah. Well, the story of a musician's path to success never disappoints. I do want to thank you for all the joy and giving you've provided everyone here in the Bay Area. You're certainly a treasure here. And, and I just want to wish you the best of health and a happy new year for you. I appreciate that, Larry. And I love the Bay Area, too. You know, the neat thing about our the Bay Area is that San Francisco is a real city, but we have a town feel. There's a community of artists in Bay Area that have always felt connected to one another. And I, I don't know why that is, but it definitely is true. And it it's a wonderful place to grow up as an artist, the Bay Area. Yep. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Larry. have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings Podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.